number 767 has just been announced. And if I could do so, let me just ask you to keep your songbook out for just a moment and turn to song number 739. 739. What will you do with Jesus? That's not only the title of that song, it's the title of the lesson today. What will you do with Jesus? Let's sing that together. What will you do with Jesus? The question comes to you. And you must give an answer for something you must do. What shall it be? What shall it be? What shall your answer be? What will you do with Jesus? Oh, what shall your answer be? What will you do with Jesus? It comes by night and day with pierced hands uplifted. He waits, what will you say? What shall it be? What shall it be? What shall your answer be? What will you do with Jesus? Oh, what shall your answer be? What will you do with Jesus? He's knocking at the door. Refuse him so no longer, lest he should plead no more. What shall it be? What shall it be? What shall your answer be? What will you do with Jesus? Oh, what shall your answer be? What will you do with Jesus? We just sang that song, and you may well notice that some of the questions asked in it are very piercing, very profound, and very direct. And yet, as you and I spend the next few moments thinking about implications of that for ourselves, we'll wrestle with a few thoughts, and we'll begin with these introductions. We just looked at that song that I've mentioned on that slide, 739. May I ask, Pilate asked that question in the reading that Brother Vestal read in our hearing a moment ago. What shall I do with Jesus, Pilate asked. May I point out, though, that that isn't just a question that Pilate on one occasion asked. It is quite frankly a question that each and every one of us also must answer. We are asked exactly the same question. Let's begin our lesson like this. First, let's rehearse slightly the circumstances that led Pilate to ask that question. 
and then we'll devote the remainder of our lesson to making applications for ourselves, things that will, quite frankly, challenge us rather notably. I've chosen to begin it like this. Jesus, as you may well recall, was upon trial by the Jewish folks. They, you may remember, he had been arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. And as such, he was very quickly brought, in light of all of that, to trial before Pilate. Pilate was the Roman procurator, the Roman governor. And you and I are told by the writing in John especially that Pilate found no fault in Jesus. Although the Lord Jesus had been brought before him, Pilate quite frankly admitted, I find no fault in him. I've invited you to notice, Pilate in an an effort to excuse himself even sent Jesus to Herod at one time. He learned that Jesus was of Nazareth and that was under the jurisdiction of Herod. When Pilate, or rather when Herod in fact recognized the nature of the Christ, recognized who had been brought before him, he had no interest. He wanted Jesus to perform a few miracles for him. He was wanting to be entertained, and the Lord wasn't in that business. Herod rather quickly sent Pilate, or rather Jesus, back to Pilate. Pilate's next consideration was this. He knew that it was a particular season wherein he could release a prisoner, and he was quite hopeful it would seem that they would select Jesus to be released. He offered Barabbas. Would you rather I release Barabbas or Jesus? Those Pharisees and others stirred up the people, and they asked for the release of Barabbas. And it was in that kind of consideration that you come near the bottom of that slide. After some questioning between Pilate and Jesus, Pilate then said, What do I do with Jesus? Pilate symbolically washed his hands of the matter. His wife had even told him, don't have anything to do with this just man. And that brought us to the observation of verse 22. Pilate saith unto them, what shall I do then with Jesus, which is called Christ? You notice what they cried. They cried to crucify him. What do I do with Jesus, and what do you do with Him? May I offer, it seems that there are four possibilities, four choices, four answers you and I might give. Let's quite frankly look at them one by one, and we'll not need to be very lengthy with regard to any one of them, because they're self-evident. They explain themselves, but here's the first one. Some people deny Him. What will you do with Jesus? Some people deny Him. We have biblical record of those in that category. In Isaiah 53, you may recall that powerful passage in which there was a prophecy 850 years into the future of the coming of the Christ. And these words were specified. You may notice as that chapter began, again, it's only a few verses in length really, But in the midst of that presentation, he is despised and rejected of men. Some people despise him. Some people reject him. There are those, you see, who have not interest in that for which he stands and the ultimate demand of obedience that he makes. They deny him. It was not only foretold in light of that, as you and I come to John chapter 1, verse 11. 
Here, very early in John's gospel account, we have these rather memorable words. He came into his own, and his own received him not. He came to his own, but his own didn't receive him. They denied him. You and I know that that reference to his own puts us into the position of the Jewish people, the very ones to whom he came. He was of that group, and yet the Jewish leaders, the Pharisees, the chief priests, the scribes, the doctors of the law, they despised him. They didn't receive him. So it's entirely possible, you see, that the question that has been asked could well be answered, I want nothing to do with him. The person may not come out and say it in those words, but they deny him. On that slide, you may appreciate the personal tragedy that ultimately comes with a response like that. Could I ask you to notice as I read Acts chapter 13, verse 46? You see that when Paul came to that particular region on the first missionary journey, this very circumstance is the one that we encounter there and this was the way in which that response is worded. Beginning in verse number 45, But when the Jews saw the multitudes, they were filled with envy, and spake against those things which were spoken by Paul, contradicting and blaspheming. Let's pause long enough to say, as Paul and Barnabas preached the gospel, you notice with me in verse number 45 that that group of Jews that were then hearing these things, the text says, they spake against them. They weren't happy with and interested in that which Jesus involved. They denied Him. Now look at the next verse. Let's see what happened. Then Paul and Barnabas waxed bold and said, It was necessary that the word of God should first have been spoken to you. But seeing ye put it from you, and judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life, lo, we turn to the Gentiles. To deny the Lord is to bring eternal death. In eternity in hell. That's what it brings. When you and I deny the Lord here, there will be a price to pay. The very one we deny here, we're going to stand before on the day of judgment. The very one we denied will pronounce our sentence. Wouldn't it be something to put yourself in Pilate's shoes? The very one who he denied will be the very one pronouncing eternal sentence on him. We ought not deny him here. We should be wiser than that. Let's close that slide by noting this. In Mark chapter 10, beginning in verse 17, do you recall that the rich young ruler, he came running to Jesus, rather excited, no doubt, to give thought to where he would stand in the wisdom that the Master might well provide. But you may recall that as that episode ended, Jesus said, one thing you lack... Remember, he had testified, I've kept all the commandments from my youth. The Lord said, one thing you're missing, one thing you lack. Go sell all you have and give it to the poor and come follow me. And at that point, the text says he went away sorrowfully, for he had many riches. Do you notice? He wasn't willing to accept what the Master told him. He denied too. You and I today, what will you and I do with Jesus? Deny, that's a possibility. How tragic. What might another answer be? Sometimes it's not open denial. What about delay? There are those who, 
have some interest in what the master says. They maybe have an appreciation for the urgency and the matters consistent with what he teaches and the blessing and reward that comes with it and exactly that for which Jesus stands and the hope that he makes very much alive. But you see, although the flame is not very strong, they say, wait a while please, won't you Lord? Wait a little while longer. I'm not quite ready now, but give me some time. So rather than deny, it's delay. The Bible gives us examples of those in that category as well. Would you give thought with me to Acts chapter 24, verse 25? You may recall that there you and I encounter a gentleman. And when Paul presented the message of truth, you may remember he reasoned of righteousness and temperance and judgment to come. And the man's answer was, in a more convenient season, I'll call for you. He wanted some convenience, you see. Now I've got business to attend to, and I have other matters to which I give my attention. Wait a little while. I want a more convenient season. Shouldn't all of us remember the word of truth presses hard. There are no loopholes in it. It's not as though I can twist it and pervert it and turn it and somehow ease through a matter of convenience and get around it. It presses hard. Agrippa knew that, didn't he? In Acts 26, when Paul, of course, also found himself before this rather powerful Roman magistrate, Paul preached a masterful message. In fact, at one point, he even made it quite personal. King Agrippa, I know you believe. I wonder how red his face became. Paul knew that he knew. I know you believe. Do you remember what Agrippa said? Agrippa answered, Almost you persuade me to be a Christian. Almost. Almost. Paul quickly replied, I would that not almost, but altogether you were as I am, except these bonds. You see, almost wasn't good enough. Delay's not the right answer either. We shouldn't want for a better day, a better time, some other circumstance. Today, you see, is the day of salvation. It's today. Today. It's not tomorrow. It's not next Sunday. It's not tonight. Today, right now. And if you're lost, I hope that you'll think carefully. You may not be in denial, but you may be in delay. But that's not going to work. It just won't work. Let's finish that observation like this. What did Jesus say in Mark 8, verses 36 and 37? In the midst of that gospel account we know as Mark, Jesus highlighted so strongly the features in light of answers that He was giving to those that were asked of Him. And you recall what He said. What shall a man give in exchange for his soul? What will it profit a man if he gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Everything that you and I have. Don't you know that on the day of judgment we would trade all of it and then some to hear Him say, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Nothing we have here will mean anything then if we're lost. The only thing about all of that will be the degree to which we've used it 
to maintain allegiance and stewardship of what God has given us. One of the next verses, surely it's a highlight that we've already noted, but shouldn't we remember what Paul urged upon the Corinthian congregation? In 2 Corinthians 6, he began that chapter by pointing out the goodness and the graciousness of God, and what a marvelous lesson. But he quickly pointed out, today is the day of salvation. I wonder how many, upon hearing that message read on that time of service at court, I wonder how many came forward. I wonder how many responded or made changes in their life as appropriate. Today is the day of salvation. You and I aren't promised tomorrow. Boast not thyself of tomorrow, for thou knowest not what a day may bring forth. That wording of Proverbs 27, verse number 1, is another reminder that although denial is a possibility, and some have chosen that course of action to their own detriment, Others say delay, but that hasn't worked out well either. We have no record that either Felix or Agrippa ever obeyed the gospel, as close as they may have been under the preaching of Paul. What about a third possibility? Deceive. Not denial, not delay, deceive. Sometimes you and I, in great foolishness, think we can deceive Jesus. I'll make him think that I'm a servant, and I'll make him think that, in fact, my service is directed toward him, but it really isn't. I might warm a pew, but what you see me do on Monday will have very little association to what I professed on Sunday. My life is a very poor reflection of the earnestness which the Lord would ask of me. I don't watch my speech very much. When I'm around other people, I may even involve myself in things kind of ugly. Because it's funny, you know. And I kind of enjoy the, the, the audience that they give me. I don't pray very often. I don't mind missing the services either. Oh, I'm there most of the time, but it really doesn't bother me when I miss. I don't really read the Bible a lot either. And I wish the services would last a little bit shorter. You know, i got other things I need to be doing. And the very least of which is I need to eat and get to work. You see, I'm deceiving myself in that case. And I may think I'm deceiving the Lord. <clears throat> but you know I'm not. He knows where your heart is. He knows if you're a true Christian or whether you're committed to His walk of life or not. Have you ever thought about the fact there'll be a lot of those who profess to be Christians lost at the day of judgment a bunch jesus put it like this <clears throat> in matthew 7 many shall say to me in that day lord lord have we not prophesied in thy name in thy name cast out devils in thy name done many wonderful works there'll be a lot of people there that day that knew the name of the lord and they gave some profession to serving him but then he says but then i'll profess to you i never knew you Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. You see, we may think we're fooling him, but we aren't. We're only fooling ourselves. And that kind of deception leads us to notice some of those verses I ask you to consider. Would you reflect with me on the church at Laodicea? In Revelation 3, beginning in verse 14, 
we have the seventh of the seven churches of Asia addressed. And to that congregation, the Lord had these words to say, they thought they had it all. We are rich and have need of nothing. And all the while, the Lord was so quick to point out, you, on the other hand, despite your impression of yourself, you are miserable and poor and wretched and blind and naked. And here's what you need to do. Repent. That's what you need to do. Repent. May I say, if you and I have thought that we might deceive the Lord, maybe we give some profession that we're Christians, but our heart really isn't in it then our answer is one of deception, and that isn't going to work either. It'll work no better than denial. It'll work no better than delay. In 2 Corinthians 5, verse 10, we, we read this statement that should be an ever-present reminder. Isn't it true that Jesus said, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in his body, according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. There are two observations we might quickly make. First, it said every one of us. That doesn't leave any of us out. None of us are exempted. We cannot avoid that appointment. But not only that, it says, for the deeds done in the body, it's not the deeds done in your body for which I'll give answer, nor the deeds done in mine for which you'll give answer. The deeds done in His body, whether it be good or bad. What am I doing and what about you? Is our service to the Master, is our service to the King one in which we're being asked, what will you do with Jesus? Am I trying to deceive? Are you? One last verse about that would be the one that you and I just noted. Didn't Jesus state it so strongly? A few verses earlier in that chapter. Enter ye in at the straight gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leadeth to destruction, and many there be which go in thereat. Because straight is the gate, and narrow is the way which leadeth into life, and few there be that find it. We can't merely use the popularity of the crowd. We can't use the notability of the majority. For the Lord said, that group's lost. It's the narrow way that leads to life. It's the few that find it. Are you and I that peculiar people possessed by the Lord for good works, Titus 2.14? Are we the ones that in fact share forth the blessedness of that? What will you do with Jesus? Deny, delay, deceive. What about one more? What about devotion? All four of the words begin with the letter D. I hope that makes them easier for all of us to remember. What about devotion? This, of course, is the right answer. It's the one that should be characteristic of you and me. The Lord presented to us a portrait beginning in Matthew chapter 13. You recall it as the parable as well as do I, that parable of the soils. There was one soil described as wayside soil. The seeds fell upon it, didn't even germinate and bring forth. It was ground packed by foot traffic and otherwise. Jesus, as He gave us the interpretation of that parable, He said, that's the soil representative of the heart that hears the Word and it doesn't even bring forth. The person neglects it, overlooks it, does away with it immediately. The Word never even begins to grow. 
But then some of those seeds fell in ground that was described differently. It was stony. Oh, it had a lot of rocks in it. You and I have, have had to try to bring out a garden in a rocky place. We know how, what it's like. Maybe granddad or granddad said, son, you got to get the rocks out of it. Well, maybe we didn't do as good a job as we should have. Or maybe there was just so many, though we did our best, it was still rocky. And the plants come up and they start to grow, but the roots don't have the deepness required for a healthy and powerful crop. Jesus said hearts can be that way. That person who hears the word, starts to grow and let that gospel bring forth. But the persecutions of life and the difficulties and travails that come with it, they finally overwhelm it and it withers away. May you and I not be in that category either. But there was a third kind of soil encumbered with thorns. Oh, this kind of soil, it had enough to bring forth rubbish and things that's no good like thorns. But some of those good seeds fell there. And although the plants would start to grow, maybe you've been there too. Maybe some seeds fall in a fence row where there's all kinds of high grass and thorns. And you might look and find, oh, there is a cucumber plant in there, but there sure won't be much crop. Because you see, the thorns choke it out. Your life and mine can be like that. You start to serve the Lord, and perhaps for a while you do, but then the cares and riches of life, they choke out the Word. You and I can become so busy with everything else that our service to the Lord suffers, and we end up in hell because of it. May we not let possessions and riches and work cause us to be unfaithful. Priority to the Lord should come first in every way. Thankfully, there was a good soil. Well prepared, fertile, and some of those seeds fell in it. That's the devoted soil. And that's that heart, you see, that not only brings forth in that literal way of the, of the actual plants, but it's that heart that receives the Word and is sufficiently committed and dedicated in preparation to the subject at hand that is faithful. And it brings forth much fruit unto God. Are you and I devoted? What will you do with Jesus? Let's don't delay, and let's don't deny, and let's don't deceive. But why not be devoted? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. Mark 12, verse 30. As Jesus would say at first, deny yourself, take up your cross daily, and follow me. Luke 9, 23. It might be fair to comment that how sweet it was to hear Paul say as he neared the end of his own life, at least not all that long to remain as far as we can tell he was able to say in the closing chapter of the book of 2 Timothy he said I fought a good fight I finished my course I've kept the faith henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of life which the Lord the righteous judge shall give me at that day and not to me only but unto all them also that love is appearing what will you do with Jesus what will I do with him that question only you can answer for you, and only I can answer for me. But the question will be answered one way or another. There's no way to avoid answering it. You may deny, and I think as we learned earlier, 
you're, you're costing yourself eternity in heaven if you do that. You may delay. You may suppose a more convenient day, a better day shall come. God may bless you with that opportunity. There are two things I would quickly mention. First, He may not. Secondly, though the best intentions may be yours, circumstances in life can change. You may never be as close again to obeying the gospel as you are at this moment. Another circumstance may never be nearly this good. Deception is always wrong because aren't we learned in Galatians 6, you can't deceive God. It's impossible. Why not be devoted? You have everything to gain in this life. And on top of that, the greatness of eternity in heaven. Jesus said, I came that they might have life and have it more abundantly. If you want the abundant life which the Lord offers, may I ask, what will you do with Jesus? Won't you come while we stand and while we sing?